morning, uh, reiterate Rick's announcement. All the information you need for elder ballot stuff, that's on the website front page. I'm not going to say you can't miss it because it's in small type along the uh, current events thing, but it's there uh, along with all the information you need for Warrior Dash, also on the website. And um, everything you might need to know about anything is on our website here at Prairie View Christian Church. Uh, another thing before we get started, many thanks to Scott Klein for being here this morning. Uh, my thanks is somewhat half-hearted because I know that for the next three days in my head I'm going to be a weeping and a wailing and uh, nothing we can do about that now that we've sung this song. Two weeks ago, we uh, began a collection of sermons that uh, draws loosely on the uh, show that's on HGTV, Homes on Homes. And we saw how these homeowners get in this... Oh, yay. Jim and Braden know the show. Excellent. That's, that's good. These homeowners get into a renovation disaster, and only a savior like Mike Holmes can come and get them out of their situation. And we saw something of ourselves in that situation where uh, we get ourselves into a sin disaster, and only a savior like Jesus Christ can come and get us out of our predicaments. And through who he is and what he did on the cross, we can have peace and reconciliation and restoration. Uh, we saw that to hear and obey the word of God provides the firm foundation that we need to live the Christian life and to withstand all the challenges that come against us. And we saw that to hear and disregard the word of God was to invite inevitable disaster. I had that put the test uh, put to the test in my life this week because our text this morning is going to be from Luke 14, and I personally find them some of the more objectionable words of Jesus, and I was tempted to uh, hear and disregard, but that, that wouldn't do. The big idea this morning is that the cost of discipleship is very high, higher than we would realize when we first start our walk of faith, but the reward and benefit of walking with Jesus is greater than we would imagine as well. And if I've done my work well in preparation this week and in delivery this morning, you will be made to feel uncomfortable by how much Jesus will claim of your life. But you'll also see and understand that it is worth it. You'll also perhaps be made to feel uncomfortable because we're going to go every bit of 42 or 43 minutes this morning. So let's settle in and pray before we hit the text. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance that we have to look in your word this morning. And I thank you uh, that you brought these people here into my hearing. And I pray that it wouldn't just be my words that they hear, but that your spirit would be at work and uh, entering people's ears and hearts and turning over rocky grounds and uh, helping people see who you are and what you've done for us in your son, Jesus Christ, so that we can follow and uh, hear and understand and obey the words that you have for us. It's in your great name that we pray, Lord. Amen. So, home renovation. It's a expensive and time-consuming and risky process, and nobody does it unless they have to. Now, I know that there's some people out there that are sort of chronic, habitual home improvement junkies. They're always moving from one project to the next, and they finish with the kitchen, and they're on to the bathroom. And I think we have new neighbors across the street from us at home that are like that. They moved into a new house three months ago, and there has not been a single week since then. They have not had somebody 
in and out of that house doing something. And some days it's just nonstop tradesmen in and out of the house working on stuff. And you almost have to wonder, you know, hey, guys, are you redoing your kitchen already or what? Because it seems like they just can't help themselves. There's always work going on over there. But most of us aren't like that. Most of us aren't looking for a reason to rip something apart in our house. We don't see a loose tile in the bathroom and think, oh, my goodness, rip it all out. Start over. Or, you know, oh, my goodness, I spilled milk on the countertop. Better get new countertops. So let's make them granite this time. Now, we made some mistakes. We built our house. We've got a staircase that goes uh, from the downstairs to the upstairs and back again. And we put carpet on it. And now that we've been up and down those stairs a thousand times, we're thinking maybe we should have put wood on the steps. And, you know, that's a mistake that we can live with and we're going to live with for <laughs> quite a long time. Although if somebody were to come and accidentally spill a bucket of fish bait on the steps, then, you know, there's nothing we could do. We'd have to replace that carpet because it would be done for. Usually there needs to be a real problem, something that actually needs fixing before we will invest the time energy and effort into upending our lives with renovation. You count the cost before you engage in the work. You count the cost before you follow Jesus. Figure out what you're going to gain, what you're going to give up, and make sure that the reward is worth the risk. Now, we're going to put the illustration up front this morning. One of the reasons that God gave us marriage is to help us understand something of the nature of the relationship between God and the believer, between Christ and his church. And uh, when a young man falls in love, there is a radical change in his priorities. And this week, Aaron and I asked around on Facebook and we asked around some random strangers, what are some things that you gave up as a guy or ladies? What did your husband give up for you when he fell in love? And these are Actual answers that real people have given up for the sake of their beloved. And there are seven of them in order of increasing importance. So number seven on the list of things that guys give up uh, from what we heard this week. Doing what you want when you want. If you attach yourself to somebody else, all of a sudden their time and their schedule matters. And you can't just run off to the boats and, and go river gambling or whatever whenever you want. That's not suitable anymore. Number six, something that somebody actually gave up, an English Mastiff named Hulk. Didn't know anything about English Mastiffs. Turns out they can get to be 250, 300 pounds. So Hulk, apparently an appropriate name for such a beast and something that was probably gladly sacrificed for the sake of the beloved. Number five, wearing an earring. I'm not going to say that that was Carl because I don't have to. Number four, they're not even here this week. Number four, dressing like a dweeb. That was Aaron who said that one, that her beloved gave that up. Number three item that a gentleman might give up, did give up, dairy products. Yesterday at the grocery store, standing in front of the ice cream case, there's a guy looking at ice cream. His wife is out of town. When he got married, he had to give up ice cream because it didn't agree with her, couldn't have it in the house. She's traveling, so he's cheating on the diet, and he's getting some ice cream. A little more significant than cheating on a diet. Number two thing you ought to give up when you fall in love, dating other women. That's important. Sort of serious when that does not happen, uh, but not nearly as serious as number one from multiple sources. The number one thing that guys give up or should give up when they fall in love, video games. <laughs> Write that down, Heinzman. Where is he? Kyle? Somebody tell Kyle. That's important. 
Okay. Uh, these are the sorts of things that just lose their luster when uh, somebody falls in love and they want to spend time with the object of their uh, affection. There's a whole new set of priorities, things like personal grooming and speaking in complete sentences and even learning to enjoy the things that she enjoys. So a young man will completely overhaul his priorities and he will exchange possessions like a motorcycle for things like a Volvo. And if things get really serious, maybe a minivan. If he gets a terminal case, maybe a Volvo minivan. There's nothing you can do when it gets that far. He will neglect his relationships and stop hanging out as much with his frat brothers and start favoring the company of other couples, even his wife's parents, even. And there are things that he valued in his life, like uh, hunting and fishing and poker and bowling, wee bowling, video games, even things like plans, hopes, dreams, aspirations. Those are all things that he will gladly sacrifice for the good of the marriage, for the good of the family. And we understand that those sorts of sacrifices are necessary and desirable. If you've already gotten weary of thinking about Mike Holmes, then we can see this illustrated in the life of a different Holmes. Katie, seven or eight years ago, she was a uh, aspiring, established actress in New York who had a life and friends and a career of sorts, and she one day met Tom Cruise. And we all saw, well, some of us saw, I heard that her uh, life was totally turned upside down. She forsook her career. She dropped her friends. She gave away all of her possessions in her apartment in New York for the sake of Tom Cruise. And you can't push this illustration too far because we got Tom Cruise playing the role of Jesus. And not only is he much too short for such a role, you also can't ever allow your spouse to, to occupy the role of being that, that God figure in your life. But you can see, this is a limited purpose illustration, she gave up a lot in order for this one benefit that she thought was going to be worth it. In an ideal world, uh, each bride and groom will enter into marriage with a realistic set of expectations of what's involved. Everything is not going to be great all the time. It's for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. If I had made my proposal of marriage to Aaron along the lines of, I love you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you, as long as you're always beautiful, you always make me happy, we're always healthy and rich, and we have two and a half kids, and I always get to pick what we watch on TV, and um, there's... Uh, always various cuts of meat and large bowls of ice cream available for dinner. If I had made my proposal along those lines, she might not have said yes. I, I, I don't know. It's, she, she might have discouraged me from getting married or pursuing a lady under those terms. Because what lady would allow such expectations to stand? That just, it won't do. And she would have told me that yes, marriage is going to be rewarding, but it's also going to be difficult and hard work. If you marry with ridiculous expectations, you will feel tricked and bamboozled and you'll want to get out quickly. The same sort of dynamic is at work when we are considering following Jesus. We understand there's great benefit in knowing Jesus because all the promises of God are available through him. But if we go into the Christian life with those ridiculous expectations, then we will also get discouraged or worse. Jesus calls everybody and anybody to come to him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Let the little children come to me. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, drink living water. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call sinners, and he calls us to himself. He calls us not because we has something valuable to offer to him because he has something valuable to us. If we respond to him with trust and uh, put our hope and confidence in him, then we can be reconciled to God. He offers us freedom from sin and its curse if we respond to him with uh, repentance and faith and obedience. Anybody who wants to can come to Jesus and learn from him and follow him and be his disciple. But whether or not somebody wants to come to Jesus depends on whether they see some things correctly, whether they grasp how great the peril is of their sin and whether they are willing to see how great is the treasure that we have in Jesus and whether or not they are willing to count the cost. Fortunately, Jesus himself helps us understand uh, what he was calling us to. In fact, he encouraged people to take a good, long, hard look at the cost of discipleship. So if you haven't already, please turn to Luke 14 in your Bibles. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, it'll be on or about page 874, and we will start in verse 25. I don't hear very many pages turning, so I guess you're already there. 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus not mean? He's not calling for that visceral, venomous, emotional hostility that we know as hatred. Instead, this is just a manner of speaking that calls us to intentionally love one thing more and something else less. Uh, you cannot serve God and money for either you will love the one and hate the other or you will hate the one and love the other. God is not calling us to despise currency. You know, oh no, keep your quarters and dimes away from me. I hate those. No, it's a question of priorities. You can use God in your pursuit of money, or you can use money to further your walk with God. One of them is going to be sacrificed to gain the other. Jesus is extending that idea to our family relationships, and he's calling us to intentionally love him more than our family relationships. Parents, kids and those of our own generation. And this was offensive to the people he spoke to. And it's offensive to us because we have sayings, you know, family first. Nothing is more important than family. Blood is thicker than water. There is not much that our postmodern can postmodern society can agree that is sacred. But if there was anything, family might be at the top of that list. And the folks in Jesus day were no different, holding family in very high regard. So for Jesus to say, I'm more important than your mother. Love me more than your kids. That was in your face obnoxious. It's not a completely foreign idea to us. Three weeks ago, if you were here, you heard Craig talk about how we are to be uh, disciples first and then husbands. And then we can take a crack at fatherhood. First, we are to love God and then we love our spouse and then we can properly love our kids. Notice that uh, Craig himself, you know, number one, me, did not arrive anywhere on those list of priorities. And that's what Jesus goes after next in verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And at first, 
this doesn't seem so unusual. It appears that he's talking about straightforward martyrdom. And uh, we can see in the early church, the church fathers, the apostles against the evil Roman Empire or a Bonhoeffer against the Nazis, Jim Elliott against the unknown jungles in the Amazon or Christians this morning elsewhere in the world in places like Nigeria, in Sudan, Middle East, North Korea and China. It's not hard to see how a Christian could be called to go to their death for the sake of the kingdom of God. We revere these Christians for their guts, and rightly so. But I think that Jesus is wanting us to think not just about death, but also everything that leads up to death. It is it's one thing to be called to die for the name of Jesus. And it's a different thing to be called to live a life that might be long, lonely, dark, difficult, and painful. Think of Elijah on the run from Jezebel. She's out to get him. He's a prophet of God. He's hiding in a cave in the wilderness. And he's had enough. And he says to God, enough, enough. Just please kill me now before Queen Jezebel does. And what does God say? No, no, you must live. You're not done yet. There's more work for you to do. I have more of the same in store for you. Jesus is calling us to love our own life intentionally less than we love him to choose to follow him not just into death but to choose to follow him with our very lives on what might be a long dark road yea though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death i fear no evil for thou art with me okay that is a great and wonderful promise but does it make the valley any less deep and does it make the darkness and the shadow any less cold and oppressive and does it make the inevitable death any less inevitable it's wonderful that god is with us but that is still a long long hard road jesus says to bear your own cross carrying the crossbar to the site of crucifixion was a difficult road for the condemned prisoner jesus does not say to us here's a cross lay down on it and die now he says no Pick up the cross and carry it throughout your life. He backs us up several steps and says, no, first you must walk the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. For some of us, that path is obvious. Like for Paul, it was easy. He knew exactly what was expected of him and exactly what it would cost. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He knew what he needed to do and he knew what it was going to cost him for us. However, it can be much less clear what it is that God is calling us to renounce. And for our time this morning to be useful for us, we have to move beyond the general you know, renounce your life to more specific. In what way am I clinging to something that I'm not willing to turn over to God? And I know that I'm moving into what might be very treacherous waters because I'm cutting close to what might be very precious to, to some of us. The treasure principle study that we did through the winter is bad enough because that talks about our money and our possessions and it makes us confront our fears of financial insecurity and it exposes our unwillingness to trust the God that we claim to trust. And uh, here I am calling us to renounce everything all that we have and all that we might someday have. Maybe the Holy Spirit is uh, using my words to poke on something in your heart that's much more precious to you than uh, your checkbook. For us in Hamilton County in 2012, for a lot of us, that's going to be time. 
God has given us each 24 hours in a day, and Jesus calls us, whatever we do with our time, whether it's working or sleeping or eating or church or recreation, whatever it is that we do, to be done with an eye towards building his kingdom in our lives, in our homes, our children, our workplace, our neighborhood. And some of you hate that God would go after your calendar because you'd much rather he just ask you to write a check than, than have him be Lord of your time. Maybe some of you have a, a deep dream and you've been unwilling to contemplate the idea that God might have something different in store for your life. Maybe you always dreamed of having a certain career, but what you have right now is a job and it's not something that you love to do. Maybe you dreamed of being married and you are very single or you are married and it is nothing like what you had hoped and expected it to be. Maybe some of you wished at some point to have a child of your own and you do not see how that's going to happen. Whatever it is, whatever it is, if we're not willing to trust God with the deepest desires of our life, then that's something that he's going to be confronting us with this morning. If we're not willing to acknowledge the idea that God might not have that in store for us, that he might say, no, not yet, maybe not even in this lifetime, then that's some area that we've discovered that we're not yielding to God, rather trying to use God to accomplish something. For me, that's... Aaron and Bree. I could lose my wealth, my possessions, my position, my extended family, my job, and that would all be very painful. But if I had Aaron and Bree, I would be okay. But if I had all that other stuff in abundance and did not have Aaron and Bree, that's what God has been poking on in my life this morning. Do I trust him with their health and safety and welfare and future or is that something that I'd really rather take care of myself? Thank you very much. So that's, uh, Jesus comes at us pretty hard and fast here. Hate your family, hate your life compared to how much you love and serve me. He gives us two illustrations of what he's talking about. Uh, starting at verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish... All who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Okay, one thing that's weird here, very few people would ever need, want, desire to build a tower. I'm not thinking that any of you have built a tower outside of a sandcastle, and very few of the people that are listening to him would have ever wanted to build a tower. A tower would have been used to guard a vineyard or it would have been some sort of vanity project to tell everybody how awesome you are. You know, well, look at me. I built a tower. It's so tall, right? So this is not your average Galilean, Hamilton County peasant that he's talking about. This is a, a problem for the 1%. Second, notice the downside risk of uh, failing to finish this tower that you start. Uh, it's not that you uh, failed to finish your tower, and it's not that you spent all your money and all you have is half of a tower to show for it. What he points out as the problem is people will point at you and laugh. And for an honor-shame-based culture, that would have been really, really bad news. But the second parable raises the stakes a little bit. Continue in verse 31. Or what king... Again, not you and me, but a king 
going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Our king here is outnumbered two to one, but he's playing defense, which is always easier than conquest. He gets to pick the territory. He gets to set the ambush and fortify his defenses, and he can overcome a certain deficit in numbers. He is not so badly outnumbered that it's pointless, but it's also not such a walk in the park that he's careless. He actually has to sit down and think it through. Jesus says he deliberates. You total up the cost and the benefits and the risk and the rewards, and you make a rational decision about how this is going to go. Can I win? Can this work? What's the downside of losing? Is it worth the risk? Add it all up and make a decision. If it doesn't work out in your favor, then run up the white flag and try to strike a deal. See what you can do. When Erin and I don't see eye to eye on something, she has an expression that she uses that she learned from her mother that I find completely infuriating. She'll say, I'm going to pick my battles, which I interpret as her saying, I'm going to be the grown up and graciously let you have your way. And we're going to remember this in the future next week. And also you're being a childish moron for insisting on doing it your way. And so, yes, yes, this is the same Erin that five minutes ago I could not live without. Choose your battles. Um, If you can't win this round, live to fight another day. If you can't afford to commit resources to an engagement, don't. If you're not willing to pay the cost of discipleship, choose another path. The point of the two parables is the same. If you would come and follow Jesus, you must count the cost. Are you going to be able to finish what you start? Are you going to be able to win the fight all the way through to the end? Or will you fail to finish strong and lose everything. Jesus wants us to be well-informed about the cost of discipleship so that we don't make any errors in our calculations. Some folks in their zeal to see people come to Christ will uh, paint a picture of the Christian life that has no basis whatsoever in reality. You know, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Come to Jesus and he'll satisfy your deepest desires. If you hit rock bottom, is your life a wreck? Come to Jesus. He'll make it all better. Uh, It can be so tempting to get people in the door of the church that we uh, might even ignore what Jesus actually has told us in his word. People who believe those false promises end up with expectations that can never be fulfilled. In fact, Jesus promises the opposite of what some people have been told to expect. And if you offer a uh, diminished and artificial gospel, you're going to set people up to fail and poison them against ever coming to true faith in the real Jesus. Oh, Jesus, Christianity. I tried that. Didn't work out for me. I didn't get what I expected. Well, somebody lied to you so that you would come to church with them. It seems very inconsistent for a Christian to do, but we are tempted to do that. And Jesus wants to discourage that kind of follower, the sort of follower who would come for the surface benefits, but isn't willing to pay the costs to actually press forward and find the true treasure of knowing Christ. He finishes us out in verse 33, wraps it up by saying, so therefore any one of you, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what would this have meant to the people to whom he was speaking? Uh, Chapter 14 does not start in verse 25. There's 24 verses that come first that are actually on topic. There's been three lessons or more, uh, three uh, 
encounters and conversations that he's had that lead up to this. Skipping all the details, Jesus tells the Pharisees that he had lunch with that they need to not just say that they're following God, but they need to actually answer the call of discipleship. He's already told them to renounce self-righteous, rules-based religion, pride, ego, presumption, and possessions. And that's before he even gets to verse 25 and starts talking about all those individual hopes and dreams and desires and plans that we might each wish to cling to. Now, is Jesus asking something that's too hard for us to do? Obviously, yes. This is something that is impossible without his help because this is a work that God enables in our life. And this is not something we can do without him. So assume that, I'm not assuming that you're all believers, but if you are a believer, then you do have the spirit of Christ. Then is this something that is too hard for you to do with his help? Is Jesus asking us to do something that he himself was not willing to do? Let's consider his circumstance. Before Jesus was born, His place of belonging, his home, was the throne of heaven. Isaiah 6 and John 17 and Hebrews 1 tell us about the glory that Jesus shared with the Father before he came to Bethlehem. And yet Paul tells us that Jesus did not consider that equality with God something that he needed to cling to and grasp, but he made himself nothing and was born as one of us. He renounced all that was rightfully his so that he could fulfill the purpose that God had laid out for him. He was born to a poor family, and they lived a life of poverty. He was a wandering, homeless, itinerant preacher who had to depend on the charity and support of others for his food. When he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Humanly speaking, he renounced all potential he had for wealth creation and financial security So that he could pursue this ministry that God had given to him. He renounced his possessions. He also renounced his uh, family relationships. When he um, left home at the age of 30 to start his work, he was really saying goodbye to his family. It cost him time with his mothers and sisters. It cost him the esteem and respect of his brothers. When he went to the cross, he had to turn the care of his elderly widowed mother over to one of his disciples because he wasn't going to be there for her because he was going about his father's business. He never got married, despite what you may have heard on the Discovery Channel, and he never had the companionship of a spouse. He was very much a man alone. When his uh, closest friends, uh, he asked them to watch and pray. They slept. When he told them, my accuser is coming, they fled. And when he was on trial in the middle of the night and they came and watched his trial, somebody asked him, are you with, are you with him? Are you guys his friends? You're from the same area. Do you belong together? No, no, we don't know him. Don't know what I'm doing here in the middle of the night, but I have nothing to do with him. He is not my friend. I do not know that man. He could have made choices that would have preserved his relationships with his family and friends, but it would have made for compromises in his mission. And it wasn't something that he was willing to do. He couldn't do both going to the cross to pay for our sins and do family first. He renounced and relinquished any claim of kinship and friendship for the sake of the mission that God had given him. Lastly, he renounced his own life, even to the point of death. He didn't just die for us, but he lived his whole life for us. He had no dreams or hopes of his own. His will was to do the will of the Father. 
He did his father's will without grumbling or complaining or self-pity in his life and in his death. And he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done and that he's not willing to help us do in our own lives. He promises to be with us on this path that we follow. And that takes us to our last point this morning. Is it worth it? Is following Jesus worth the cost? He goes to such great lengths to... Uh, highlights the cost of discipleship, it almost seems anti-evangelistic, although really it's merely anti-false profession, false conversion, false assurance, self-deception. He wants us to consider discipleship with our eyes open, both the costs and the benefits. He doesn't address the benefits in chapter 14, but if you turn a page or two to the right into chapter 18, he's at it again. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus And this guy loves his money. So Jesus says, he says, hey, get rid of your money and you will have treasure in heaven. Not because we all have to give away all our money, but because that's what was most important to this guy. And you cannot value money highly if you're going to value Christ highly. And so this guy, you know, treasure in heaven. What's that? Who talks like that? Nobody talks like that. I don't need treasure in heaven. I got my treasure right here. And uh, if he had given his money away... Would that have changed his idolatrous, covetous, greedy heart? He needed to not just renounce his money, but renounce the heart of fear and greed that drove him to accumulate and hoard money. And that's the sort of work that only God can do. But at least this guy was honest enough not to pretend that he didn't love money more than anything else. Over in Acts 5... Ananias and Sapphira tried to pretend. They tried to play the game and try to have it both ways. And that did not work out very well for them at all. So Peter says in verse 28, See, we have left our homes and followed you. We've left everything. Our families, our work, our livelihoods, our fishing boats, our nets, our future, our houses, and everything in them, all gone. You told that guy to get rid of his money. Well, we've given up everything, Jesus, and all we have is you. Verse 29, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, that means, listen up, Peter, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life is, is Jesus offering us a prosperity gospel. No, Jesus is offering us himself. He's offering us a place among his family. We might lose everything, but we will gain him. Paul discovered that everything that he had in his past that he considered to be so valuable was nothing compared to the value of knowing Christ. Jim Elliott said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, giving what we cannot keep. To gain what we cannot lose. All these things that we value, all these things that Jesus calls us to relinquish, We can't keep them anyway. It's only when we release our claim of ownership on our relationships and possessions and our lives and release them to God that we can embrace being a good steward of what he has given us. We don't have to abandon them. We have to abandon using them for our own ends. When we use relationships and possessions and our own lives for our own benefit, we ruin them and we fail to get the benefit that we wanted. When we renounce our ownership and become stewards of them for God's glory, only then can we truly benefit 
from them and and they can be all that they were meant to be in our lives. Week one of the Treasure Principle study, Randy Alcorn had us sign over the deeds of our life to God. And it was hokey, I know. And it's, there's a danger that it was just symbolism and already forgotten. But perhaps for some of you, it was a valuable object lesson. For me, there's a part of me that is tempted to view my relationship with Brianna as a means to an end of getting me what I uh, particularly value most, public respect. So when she does well at school, it reflects well on me. When she does well in Kid City, it reflects well on me. Hypothetically, if she were to ever do well athletically, that would potentially reflect well on me. When she blossoms into a lovely young lady, that reflects well on me because I was the one who chose and won and kept her lovely and wonderful mother. And when she acts like the seven-year-old ninny that she is, then that reflects not well on me. And uh, that's because I consider part of her life's purpose is to bring me praise and glory. But it's when I abandon my pursuit of my own glory and instead seek Christ's glory and the glory of his name that I can actually start to treat my daughter like the gift of God that she is. And I can be the sort of father that she needs, one who will train her up in the ways and fear of the Lord. And that uh, it, it sanctifies my relationship with her so that I can... Uh, enjoy her more as a sister in Christ than I ever would have been able to do otherwise. Renouncing ownership of her life and embracing stewardship under God's ownership completely transforms the way that I view our relationship and the way that we do parenting in the house. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit? Jesus wants our profit. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The promise of the gospel, as uh, the band comes up and, and we get ready to finish, the promise of the gospel is that even if we lose everything, we will still have him and he will be enough for us. If you are struggling with the cost of discipleship, if you are discovering that your expectations of the Christian life were unfounded, then direct your attention and your focus to the benefits that come with following Christ. We will have all the benefits of fellowship with his people, and he will provide for all our needs, and he'll give us strength to get through the shadowy times of this life. But at the end of the day, the promise of the Bible is that God is coming for us. Like Eric told us last week, God is coming for us, and we will be with him. And the cost of discipleship is great, but it is worth it. Let's Let's pray. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that you have given us your word so that we can know you. Thank you that you have showed us yourself through our uh, the pages of scripture and thank you that we can know you as you are through your son jesus christ thank you that you did not uh, leave us to be surprised by the challenges of this life but thank you that you told us clearly up front that following you is hard but that following you is worth it because it is only through following your son jesus christ that we can come to know you and fulfill the purpose that you have for our lives to bring glory to your name it's in the praise of your son jesus that we seek and in his name that we pray Amen.